Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, to celebrate your birth. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you give us to be here together in person. I thank you for your word that never changes, your truth that never changes. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit that can fill us and empower us and clarify our hearts and minds. So I pray, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open your word up to us, even as we open ourselves up to your word. Work in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come into the Advent season, as we are celebrating the coming of the Lord, um, it's right to celebrate this miracle birth, this miracle baby. But it's helpful to remember sometimes this is not the first miracle baby you see in Scripture. Jesus' birth is not the first one where you say, oh, that wasn't really supposed to happen that way. That's an unusual baby. And in fact, I think that there's something to be said for looking at some of the nuances of some of these other miracle babies in Scripture. I mean, yes, Jesus is the only one who was born to a virgin. That makes it a little bit special. He's the only one whose father is God himself. That makes it special. He's the only one who was born sinless and maintained a sinless life so that it enabled him to be our Savior, our Messiah. Those are very unique things. But I want to look at the miraculous births and, and some of the people that, that, that those miraculous births point us to as we look at the nuances of Christmas and Advent. And in order to talk about this, this first miracle baby, um, I have to talk about driver's ed. Um, I took driver's ed in high school, and I was an excellent driver because I was 16 years old, and that meant I knew everything. I was really, really good. For instance, the first time I got behind the wheel in driver's ed, um, it was in January, and so it was snowing and sleeting. I literally learned how to drive in slippery conditions. So I'm like, oh, I know everything, right? Because I'm 16, and I'm an excellent driver. And that's really helpful because my instructor at one point told us, and, and it just didn't, I didn't get this. Um, if you ever get into a skid, you should turn in the direction of the skid, which struck me as like leaning into a right hook. It's not smart. It doesn't make any sense. And I understand that the guy had years of experience and he had trained as a teacher. He'd been doing this for 20 years. And I, I understand that the manufacturer of the, of the, the car and of the tires says, if you ever get into a skid, you should turn the wheel in the direction of the skid. But I was 16 years old, and I was an excellent driver, and being 16, I knew everything, right? And I learned how to drive on, on slippery conditions. Fast forward to the summer and detasseling corn. Um, I detasseled corn, as many Central Illinoisans did, and if you don't know what that means, um, you're very lucky. Because um, you had to, to get to the Kroger parking lot before dawn, and everybody climbs into a school bus, and they take you out to a, to a field, and you walk the corn rows for eight hours, pulling the tassels off the top of the corn stalks. And I'll explain why some other time. But the, it's, it's mind-numbing. You find yourself in the middle of the night at like 2 o'clock in the morning dreaming, going, uh, you know, picturing this repetitive motion. But I uh, luckily was able to drive myself to the Kroger parking lot because 
I drove a 1968 Chevy truck that was a magnificent beast. Um, it was seriously, it was amazingly cool. Um, it uh, it was well, first off, I mean, it was it was gigantic for one thing, and um, it, it had uh, no seatbelts, but it was grandfathered in, you know, before it, it needed that. Um, it had no locks on the doors that worked. So every once in a while, if you took a turn too fast, the door would flip open. Um, the the floor was rusted, so you could literally see the pavement under you as you're driving. But that's okay. That's actually, that was a selling point. That was really kind of cool. I know it had a muffler. Um, it just didn't sound like it had a muffler. I got pulled over by a cop one time for not having a muffler, and I pointed out the muffler to him. And he's like, well... Okay, you know, so, but it didn't sound like it had a muffler. The thing was just amazing. There's this roaring, gigantic thing on the road. It ate Toyotas. I loved it. So, uh, there was one time we were detasseling and uh, got there, crack of dawn and everything, and, and it rained heavily from like 10 o'clock to t- 2, 2.30. We were slogging through the mud all day and everything. And it stopped raining, and the sun came out just as we were pulling in, or right before we were pulling into the uh, the Kroger parking lot. Um, and I was tired, and I got into my truck, and I was taking a buddy of mine home. And uh, we peeled out of the Kroger parking lot. And it was dry when I got there in the morning, and, I, and it was bright and sunny when I left, and I was really tired. So I wasn't paying attention to how slick the road was. And so I, I turned onto the street, and... I began to skid. And I remembered the ridiculous advice to, if you are starting to skid, you turn in the direction of the skid, right? Which is, which is ridiculous. And the best time to figure out what to do in a crisis moment is in the middle of the crisis moment, right? You should disregard every plan that you had prior to that and whatever feels appropriate at that moment and makes the most sense to you, that's what you should do. I kind of made that my life mantra ever since. Oh, wait. This is the worst time to try to figure this out. So I turned in the direction not of the skid because, of course, I would. And my skid became a full-end spin. And I spun 180 degrees and was facing oncoming traffic, which is not good. Okay, that's not what you want to be doing. And so I had a split second to make a decision, and I decided to crank it, not in the direction of the skid, so that I would continue my spin and end up 360 degrees facing the correct direction, at which point I immediately cranked it in the direction of the skid. And my car immediately stopped, and my door, which had flipped open, by the way, in the middle of the skid, slammed back shut. Now we're facing the right way, in the right lane, and I looked at the guy next to me, and I went, we're all good. (laughs) I had heard people talk about people being white as a sheet. Um, I I don't know that I'd ever seen it until I looked at my friend, who had the audacity of telling me I was a bad driver after I just saved his life. (laughs) I was an awesome driver because I was 16 years old, and I knew everything. The lesson learned here, children, (laughs) turn in the direction of the skid. 
I, I, I could explain the physics to you. I, I could do that. I really don't need to do that because I'm just telling you that people with more experience, people who understand the physics of it, people who have thought about it in advance, the manufacturer of your tires, of the car, and of the pavement will explain to you that you should turn in the direction of the skid. I don't care if you understand why. It'd be great if you did. We could talk about that over potatoes if you want. But the key thing is, when you're in the midst of it, there's what makes sense to you, and there's what doesn't make sense to you. But you really should believe that if people who trust you, who are trustworthy and people that you should trust tell you to turn in the direction of the skid, you should believe that you ter- should turn in the direction of the skid. Does that make a certain amount of sense? Do not trust your gut. Sometimes it's good to trust your gut, but not if your gut is telling you to do something contrary to what the manufacturer says to do. I say all that because it's human nature, our fallen, broken human nature, for us to yabbit all of that. I mean, I say, turn in the direction of the skin, and you go, yeah, but I don't think that makes a lot of sense. God says to do something, you go, yeah, but I don't see how that would work. God says, trust me on this. And you go, yeah, but I don't know. God says, you know, this is what you should do in this situation. This is a wrong lifestyle choice. This is the wrong way to respond to this conflict. This is the right way to respond to enemies. This is the... And we go, yeah, but you aren't in this situation with me, Lord. You know, life is more than how many dollars you have in the bank. It's more than what kind of clothes you put on your back. God... God has your back with this. He, he can handle it. You go, yeah, but you don't understand the bills that I'm looking at. You don't, understand what my, you don't understand what my wife just said. You don't understand what my husband keeps doing. You don't understand. God says, live in an attitude of gratefulness. And you go, yeah, but you don't understand the life I'm trying to live that in. God doesn't have to tell you to live in a lifestyle of gratitude if everything is just rosy, does he? He has to tell you to do that because he does know the lifestyle you're trying to live in, doesn't he? On, thir- on uh, Wednesday this week, we, we talked about from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God says in his word, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in response, we go, cool, yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, but I keep doing that, and I keep doing that, and I keep doing that, and I don't have any peace because I don't understand how this all works together, and I don't understand what... I submit to you that if you are not perceiving verse 7 in your life, there's a fair to midland chance you aren't really doing verse 6. Yeah, but I think I am. I know I am. I just don't understand. If you are trying to do verses 6 and 7 and it's not working, odds are it's because there's a part of you that says, but I don't... No, when I'm in the midst of a situation, if I should really trust God in this. Paul says, no, live in an attitude of gratitude because you, you trust that God's got this. You trust his character. And you go, but I'm just still so concerned about it. You go, then do you trust God's character in this? I want us to wrap our heads around that as we talk about this first miracle baby born to Abraham and Sarah. And this is a story that should be familiar to you. You should have heard this probably multiple times in your life, but we even talked about this from up here like two, three years ago. It should still be relatively fresh in your minds. 
that God promised Abram an heir. And Abram and Sarai didn't trust that. Because when they're in the middle of it, they're like, I don't know, we're elderly. I don't know that we can get an heir. And so they did the smart move and refused to turn in the direction of the skid, right? The manufacturer said, turn in the direction of the skid. Sarah goes, yeah, I just don't think I can have babies, so why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar, and then we can do it that way, and then we can have a sort of heir, and surely this is what God meant, and that's not cool, because God said, turn in the direction of the skid. And they went, no, because they're 16 years old, right? And they know everything. Genesis chapter 17, verse 16, God prophesied to Abram about his wife Sarah and said, I will bless her. I will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations and kings of peoples will come from her. Sarah, not Hagar. That's an amazing gift. But let me clarify, you're doing it wrong because you refuse to turn in the direction of the skit. And Abraham fell face down in worship and gratitude. Yes? No. Abraham fell face down and laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? I mean, Sarah born a child at the age of 90? It doesn't make sense. I totally am fine with trusting God as long as I understand how it works. At which point you're not trusting God anymore, are you? You're trusting your understanding that it works. You can't trust God. You can't have hope if it's hopeless. That's crazy talk. You go, or faith. God calls us to trust him when it doesn't necessarily make sense. Because Abraham didn't laugh because he thought it was a joke. He laughed because he thought it was ridiculous. He didn't just say, (laughs) okay, you have a good sense of humor. Let's see that happen. He's like, (laughs) no, you're stupid, God. It's not going to happen. I'm laughing at God. Because Abraham was 16 years old. 99. And he knew everything, right? You would never laugh at God. I would never laugh at God. We would never go, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I'm sorry, do you on a quasi-daily basis not necessarily do what the Bible tells you to do in that situation? Depending on whatever situation it is. Here's what the scripture says. You go, yeah, yeah I'm not doing that. Because you're 16 years old. Totally know everything, right? But God said, no, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, even though you don't see how, and I don't care that you don't. And you will call him Isaac, I have decided. You're going to call him Laughter. So that every time you talk about him, every time you look at him, every time you call him in from outside, hey, you are reminded I will establish my covenant with him. With your son named, we laughed because we didn't trust God. Every single time. That's what I want you to remember. And I want you to remember that I'm going to have a covenant with, we laughed because we didn't trust God, as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Because I'm going to bless everybody through the children of, we laughed because we didn't trust God to get us a son. Now, to be fair to Abraham, Sarah also laughed. Told that she laughed, and in Genesis 18, 13, Yahweh said to Abraham, hey, so why did Sarah laugh? I mean, you laughed. 
And you explain to Sarah, and she still laughed. Is anything too hard for Yahweh? I don't just mean a God. I mean, for me, is anything too hard for me? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. I'm telling you this. This is just future history. It will happen. This is not a hope based on maybe. I'm telling you. I'm going to come next year, and you will have a bouncing baby boy. And Sarah was afraid, and she lied and said, I, I didn't laugh. God's like, but you totally did. You totally did. Really? How wise is this? I'm telling you. Turn in the direction of the skit. No, I, I did. You're spinning 360 degrees. You totally didn't turn in the direction of the skit. And I love that God says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Not Hagar, your servant. Sarah, your wife. Turn in the direction of the skid. Trust me on this one, Abraham. Chapter 21, verse 1, Yahweh was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and he did for, to, for Sarah what he had promised, because he is always gracious and always faithful. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, and at the very time that God had promised him. Chapter 22, miracle baby. Sometime later, the language suggests a couple years later, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And, and this isn't like a, like a quiz kind of test or like God doesn't know what the result is going to be. It's more like, the, um, like a metalsmith testing, tempering his metal, taking out the impurities, that sort of thing. So God is like, okay, let's, uh, let's see where you're at here, Abraham. So God said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And Abraham says this three times in this story. And every time something really intense happens. Abraham, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, which is actually where Jerusalem is going to be centuries later. But that's kind of a weird way of saying this, isn't it? It's a weird intro. Why don't you go to, into how much detail about how much Abraham loves Isaac? This is your only son. Ishmael's been sent away by this time. This is it. This is your one chance I want you to take, he doesn't just say, I want you to take Isaac. I want you to take Isaac, whom you love, your one and only begotten son. I want you to take him. Okay. Take him and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering, as on one of the mountains I will tell you about. As far as we know, that's it. That's the entire theophany. No discussion, no explanation, no reasoning. Go. Sacrifice the only, one and only begotten son you have, whom you love. A lot of people really don't like this story for some reason. They're like, well, that's really intense. Why doesn't God explain himself? Shouldn't he have explained himself? Or does that defeat the purpose of what he's trying to do? This is what I'm telling you to do. Turn in the direction of the skid. Why would I... You're in the skid right now. Turn in the direction of the skid. Why would I do that? Could you explain the physics to me? Turn in the direction of the skid. How does that all work? How can you trust God when you don't know how it's going to work? I mean, how can Isaac, who's apparently like a teenager around this time, from some of the words that are used, he doesn't have any children. He's not married. How can his children become nations from which the Messiah would be born if he dies before he has any children? Isn't this cruel of God? Isn't this 
a little sadistic? I'm going to give you a hint. Can I give you a hint? Just for you guys, because you guys are here. Don't tell anybody else. Hint for you guys in understanding this. It's only cruel. It's only sadistic if you presuppose that you really shouldn't trust God. Because God says, I want you to go kill Isaac. By the way, I'd also promise that you're going to have numerous descendants through Isaac who hasn't had any children yet. Now go kill Isaac. That's only scary. It's only terrifying. It's only cruel if you presuppose you shouldn't have trusted the earlier promise. You can't really trust God. But it sure seems like me to you. Yes. So are you trusting God or are you trusting your interpretation of this? If you trust God, this is merely complicated. I'm not sure how this works. I'm energetically curious to see how God's going to bring this about. But it's not cruel. Because somehow, Abraham knows, even if he does this, he will be blessed with descendants through Isaac. And he has no idea how that's going to work. I'm going to bless the planet through the offspring of Isaac. Let me rephrase that. Do you trust me? I'm going to bless the planet through the offspring of you laughed because you didn't trust God to bring me a son, and I have a son. Do you trust me that I will still bless people through his children? Can you even say the sentence, I don't know that I trust that you will give me descendants from the loins of we laughed because we didn't trust that you were going to bring us a son without realizing how ridiculous it is for you to say that. I'm wiser than you. I've thought the physics out. I'm more experienced. I'm the manufacturer. Turn in the direction of the skid. But I don't know that I turn in the direction of the skid. You're in the skid right now. I'm not asking you to understand it. I'm asking you, turn in the direction of the skid. What would you do if you were Abraham? Okay, that's actually a trick question because you are. You are Abraham. You have to answer this question every day. Maybe not about sacrificing a child, but aren't there things every day where God says, this is what you should do. I'm telling you, this is how this works. This is what you should do. Do you trust me? And every day, don't you have to make a decision? Yes. Or... No! You are Abraham. This is just a very pointed story so that we would actually remember to do that. Early next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. No explanation, no discussion, no equivocation. Took two of his servants with him and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance, Mount Moriah, Looming in the distance, and this is the last place he knew Isaac would ever see before he died. It's also the last place Jesus saw before he died. Anyway, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy, technically in Hebrew it's I and the young man, me and the teenager, 
teenager in me. So it's not just a little big kid. Stay here while the young man and I go over there. We are going to worship and then possibly the most crucial pronoun in Scripture. Stay here while the young man and I go over there. We're going to worship and then we will come back to you. I have no idea how this works. You go, oh, so he wasn't really planning to kill him. He wasn't. He figured there would be something tricky. I love that the writer of Hebrews actually tells us his thought process. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who received his promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. I keep getting this phraseology, one and only begotten son. Even though God had said to him back in Genesis 21, it's through you laughed because you didn't trust that I was going to give you a son, that your offspring would be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, according to the writer of Hebrews, that God could raise the dead. I love that. I love that. Did we see how far his faith has gone from somebody who was laughing about the possibility that God could give him a miracle baby, who now says, I don't know how God is going to work this, but I'm going to kill Isaac. I have every intention of killing him. And then I'm going to bring my boy home alive and well. I don't know how that works. I've never seen anybody risen from the dead. But since he's calling me to kill him, and since I trust what he said before, we will return. Fully intending to kill him. That's faith. That's hope. Not, man, I hope I have a good day. Not, man, I hope of this all. It's, no, my hope is in God's character because I don't see how this works. The only way I can even think that it could work is that somehow God could raise him from the dead. And I love that the writer of Hebrews says, well, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He, he did, technically because he fully intended to turn him over. And I love when you think about that. You go, so in one little story, you get a miracle birth. This miracle baby, like you get at Christmas time, this announcement of a child that there's no way that you could see how they could be born. But then you also get this sense of sacrificing your one and only begotten son that you get on Good Friday. And also this confidence and faith that God can raise even the dead that you get on Resurrection Sunday in one little story. This is not God being malicious. This is not God being capricious. This is not God being cruel or sadistic. This is God going, I want to indelibly write in your mind how this works. I want you to indelibly remember what it means to have faith and trust. I want you to indelibly remember all these things that I intend to bring about centuries from now in the life of my own one and only begotten son whom I love. I want you to indelibly remember this and dramatically remember to turn in the direction of the skid because I'm the manufacturer and I know this. Do not trust what you think you do. Do not trust what you feel in the moment. Don't pivot away from truth because you feel in a given emotional moment that this would be easier. That this is the way you should respond to an enemy. This is the wise decision you should make. This is how you should 
ground yourself in the manufacturer's instructions to how to actually do this. As the two of them went on together in chapter 22, verse 7, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, "Um, Father? Here I am, my son, Abraham replied. I know the NIV doesn't say that, but it does in the Hebrew. Here I am. Um, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Why did we leave the servants down at the base of the mountain, and are we alone, and you keep looking at me funny and crying? I'm not dumb. I'm not a little kid. What exactly are you planning to offer up? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Which actually does answer that, doesn't it? It's like, God already has. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar, and there he arranged the wood on it, and he bound his son Isaac. Abraham's like 115. His 15-year-old son lets him bind him. This isn't just Abraham's faith. This is Isaac's faith laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out with his hand and he took the knife to slay his son, his only begotten son whom he loved, fully intending to kill him. And the angel of Yahweh called out to him from heaven, Abraham, 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 Abraham. Chased down by God himself. Tempered, tested, found to be true in his faith, even to show himself that he's true. Other gods might demand sacrifice of children, Molech did, but not Yahweh. Never going to call for you to do that. Not your son. The angel of Yahweh called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Here I am, Abraham says, third time. Don't lay a hand on the boy, God says. Don't do anything to him. I know that you fear God. And it doesn't, that word there doesn't mean, oh, I, I didn't know that before. This is more of a of confirming it. It's like, it is clear that you that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your one and only begotten son. And Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. A simple but completely unforeseeable move, X and not X, suddenly got to both be true. You need to be willing to go kill your son and you're going to be able to take him home alive and well. Is there any way that Abraham was supposed to know that there was going to be a ram up there on the mountain? No. Did God need to explain that to him in advance? No. Do you need to understand the physics of a skid? No. Turn in the direction of the skid. God's command makes total sense after it. After the fact, he's asking for faith before the fact. So Abraham called the place, Yahweh will provide. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will provide. Because when God himself says, turn in the direction of the skid, you really should trust him, even if you don't know why, you should turn in the direction of the skid, because God already knows why. And on this day it said, even today, it said, on the mountain of Yahweh it will be provided. The same mountain Years later, centuries later, where Jerusalem would stand, where Solomon would build the temple of God on this mountain, where sacrifices would be made. 
Same place where God sacrificed his one and only begotten son whom he loved. Saying, I will never demand that you do this, but I'll do this for you because God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now we're back to Christmas. That all this is a forward echo of what God already knew he was going to do as, a, as the most perfect Christmas present anyone has ever given anyone. This perfect sinless life laid down to pay for our imperfect sinful lives. We didn't earn it, we couldn't earn it. Which is why it's a gift. So as we approach this miracle baby birth of Jesus, remember what you learned from Isaac's story. Remember about trusting God even when we don't understand the details, especially when we don't understand the details because we're all of us just 16 years old. And we assume we know everything. But the next time you try to decide about whether or not you should do the ethical thing, about whether or not you really should trust the Bible, about whether or not this is the way you should deal with an enemy, about whether or not this is the way you should deal with your spouse, about whether or not... The next time, remember what Scripture tells you. Remember what God has already told you. Remember that the manufacturer says, turn in the direction of the skid and don't go, but that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to do that now that I'm in the midst of this situation. And remember that God's provision was already there. Before you ever had to turn in the direction of the skid, the truth is there. By the time they got to Mount Moriah, by the time they got to the place of sacrifice, the ram was already in the thicket. God had already provided. They just didn't know it. Remind yourself, indelibly remind yourself of God saying, I'm not cruel. I'm trustworthy. Do you trust me? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that, that what you call us to do, even when it sounds ridiculous, it ends up making sense, which suggests that it's only ridiculous on our end because we presuppose that we couldn't really trust you because it made total sense on your end, knowing everything and all the details. So I pray, Lord, give us your heart, give us your eyes, give us your wisdom, give us your spirit, and lead us in your ways. In Jesus' most holy name, and for your